The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning, The Heirs of God, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So when we first began our consideration together of Romans chapter 8, we noted then that Paul had initiated a closing arguments, if you will, in what has become, in my opinion, (laughs) an airtight case that was opened all the way back in chapter 4. And Paul's concern in this section of the letter has been and now continues to be the security or the assurance of the one who has been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, the, The strong assurance of the one who has put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, apart from any work of his own. That's Paul's concern now as he has been building his case. He wants to bolster our assurance. Thank God for it. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. The promises of God are given through the righteousness of faith. And those who are heirs of the promises are heirs through faith, okay? Therefore, verse 16, our salvation then is of faith alone so that it might be according to grace alone. And it is of grace alone so that it might be sure or might be certain to all the seed of Abraham. That's Paul's point. If salvation were dependent upon us, we would be doomed. There would be no hope. But because salvation is all of... Is because salvation is through faith and by grace, because it is of grace, it is all of God and therefore sure to all the seed of Abraham, to those who share the faith of Abraham as the promised son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have been justified in this way, those who have been justified through the means of faith have peace with God. And Paul wants us assured of that fact. We are secure in our justification. We have peace with God. Now, Paul has determined to approach this case through a a masterful explanation of all of the astonishing blessings and benefits and blessedness that has been conferred upon the one who trusts in Christ through faith. Paul has decided to or determined to make his case by giving to us all of the the sure mercies and graces that are ours because salvation is a salvation or because our justification is a justification by the means of faith. He explains imputation, representation in chapter 5. He explains our spiritual union with Jesus Christ in chapter 6. He explains our freedom from the condemning power of the law in chapter 7 and our new relationship to the Spirit of God who indwells us, chapter 8. And that, all of that, leading us once again to the subject, again, this morning of assurance of our security in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. There's a certainty to that statement, right? If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, it's important to our understanding of verse 16, the subject of our consideration this morning. It's important to our understanding of that verse that we approach Paul's statement there by considering the context. So think with me about the context. Paul begins chapter 8 with a contrast between those who walk according to the flesh and those who live or walk according to the Spirit. The one who has put his faith in Jesus Christ for salvation has been brought into union with Jesus Christ. And he has been given then the gift of his Spirit who has taken up residence within him. He has the gift of the Holy Spirit. By virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, the indwelling spirit then stands in opposition to our flesh, in opposition to our remaining sin, in opposition to our remaining corruption. And now two opposing principles are at work. One, a principle of holiness, a principle of righteousness, working in accord with God's law. The other, a principle of sin, a principle of unrighteousness, working to satisfy the lusts of the flesh. Two principles in the believer at work at the same time. And now, within the believer, there rages the inevitable war. 
Do you see? Paul describes that battle in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul says, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now this war, however, this battle raging within the Christian is not the conflict between two equally matched antagonists. Once enslaved to a regulating or governing principle of indwelling sin and certain death, the spirit of life, as Paul refers to him in verse 2, by applying the benefits of Christ's work in our life on my behalf at the cross, the, the, the benefits that he has secured, he has made me free from that power of remaining sin. What the law could not do against the obstinacy of our sinful flesh, God did by sending his own son. By sending his own son, he condemned sin in the flesh of his own son, and his death to sin has become our death to sin. And now, as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Amen? No longer enslaved to that power of sin at work in our members, bearing fruit to death. Now set free so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but rather according to the spirit. Now, considering that great victory secured for us by the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, and considering that great purpose for which God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh, namely that God might condemn sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, Paul says, therefore, we are debtors. We are debtors. Debtors in the sense that we're not passive or neutral in the fight. We have responsibility. We are called to an active, constant, and ongoing warfare against our remaining sin. We are to put to death the deeds of the body. Considering the great gifts that we've been given, we are those under obligation to mortify the flesh through the enablement of the Spirit. And it's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian that is the cause of that warfare. And that warfare, with its increasing fruit to holiness in the life of a Christian, is the evidence of the Spirit's indwelling presence. Those putting to death the deeds of the body are those who are being led by the Spirit. And as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Those who have received the Spirit of God... Not as a spirit of bondage, whereby we are enslaved again to a fear of condemnation, but rather as the spirit of adoption, by whom we are given and by whom we enjoy all of the blessings and benefits of being firstborn sons in the household of God. And namely, namely the indescribable privilege, the indescribable blessing of being able to call on God as our heavenly father having unimpeded, unrestricted, unrestrained access to the throne of grace in our time of need. By virtue of our union with Christ, our mediator, by virtue of his spirit who now indwells within us, we have been brought into an irrevocable relationship with God the Father as his own children. You see that, that how assured, how certain that is, how secure that is. And it's that assurance, it's the assurance of that fact cultivated by his spirit within us that encourages the confident cry of the believer, Abba, Father. Otherwise, it'd be reasonable and rational to flee in terror because he is holy and you and I are not. But because of his spirit, because of the gifts and graces of God poured out upon us, because of the love of God shed abroad in your heart, Romans chapter five, right? We flee, we cling to him in love crying out, Abba, Father. Now, it's at this point that Paul then concludes the original train of thought that he began at the beginning of chapter 8, that he opened chapter 8 with, a train of thought intended by Paul to explain our security, uh, a, a train of thought that was started or intended by Paul to strengthen our assurance. And he ends that train of thought with verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then Paul follows that statement regarding the assurance of our salvation with its glorious implications. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So I've planned for us now to consider our text then this morning, verses 16 and 17, under two headings. First, the assurance of our sonship. Second, or next, the implications of our sonship. The assurance of our sonship, the implications of our sonship. First, consider the confident assurance given to the believer through the gracious work of the Spirit. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. An awesome statement. I want to know what that means, don't you? All right. And notice, Paul himself emphasizes the witness of the Spirit in our text. It's the witness of the Spirit that is emphasized. It is the Spirit himself that bears witness. That emphasis is in consideration of the fact that in our text, there are two bearing witness. There are two who are bearing witness in these verses. It's the believer's own response to the Spirit's work in his heart that leads to the cry of verse 15, Abba, Father. Now, it's in the language of verse 16 that that is the believer's witness. The believer's witness is, God is my Father, Abba, Father. It's a witness in response to the presence and the operation of God's Spirit within us, the Spirit of adoption. However, in verse 16, Paul has in mind now the distinct witness of the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit himself. The Spirit himself bears witness. The use of that pronoun himself should focus our attention on that work of the Spirit that is distinct from the witness of the believer in verse 15. In other words, you can't completely convalesce or confuse the two, okay? There is a distinct witness of the Spirit from the witness of the believer that he gives in verse 15. Dr. Murray refers to the Spirit's witness as a witness given to us and distinct from the witness given by us. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So Paul is referring here, verse 16, to a particular and distinct operation of the Spirit of God, a particular and distinct work of the Spirit of God within the believer. Now, additionally, because there is a testimony on the lips of the believer in verse 15, Abba, Father, and because the Spirit's witness is emphasized over and against that testimony in verse 16, it's the Spirit himself who bears witness. It's understandable why Paul would then use the preposition that he does in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. These words, I want us to understand the verse, and these things become important for distinguishing. There's so many heresies, so many errors that abound around a, a proper interpretation of verse 16 that all of these things become increasingly important, right? It's not that the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit. That's certainly true. The Spirit himself is bearing witness to our spirit. That's, that's not what Paul says. Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Sum martyreo. It's a, that preposition with is, becomes important. It's rather than witnessing to. The Spirit's witness is certainly to our spirit, but there is an inseparable marriage between the witness of the Spirit and our witness, in the sense that the Spirit witnesses with our witness. Do you see? The witness of the Spirit graciously given to us, but it's our spirit as well that bursts forth in faith with the cry, Abba, Father. It's not the Spirit alone, alone, who produces that cry? It's the believer in faith who produces that cry. And the believer in faith producing that cry does not produce that cry apart from the Spirit's witness. Do you see? The Spirit of God witnesses with our spirit. And it's because of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out then, Abba, Father. You could say that one naturally or necessarily follows upon the other. Now, Paul is careful not to diminish, in the use of that word, careful not to diminish the, the faith-filled expression of the believer, the witness of the believer, that faith-filled embrace of truth of our sonship as applied in the heart by the Spirit. This is the believer's own essential expression of faith, of his childlike faith to God as his heavenly Father. But Paul also is very careful not to diminish the witness, the particular and distinct witness of the Spirit. What Paul is emphasizing 
is the Spirit's own particular distinct witness to the fact, a witness that certainly precedes, a witness that certainly enables or informs the believer's own witness, but it is a witness that is nonetheless distinct from our own. I think that's really important. It's in this way that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Do you see? Now, that being said, although the Spirit's witness in verse 16 is shown to be distinct from our witness, the Spirit himself bears witness, the Spirit's witness in verse 16 is indistinguishable from our own in the Christian's experience. It's indistinguishable from our own in the Christian's experience. In the heart and in the mind and in the experience of the believer, the witness of the Spirit is indistinguishable from our own witness. We'll talk about that too. The Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. It's embracing that witness, embracing the propositional truth of God's word in support of that witness. We then express in faith, I am a child of God, Abba, Father. The Spirit's own work in fueling and in compelling that assurance within our heart is indistinguishable from its fruit. It's in the, the same way, think with me, in the, in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, it's in the same way that we're unable to distinguish the wind from its effects. Now, this is important. Think with me. The wind blows where it wishes. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. In other words, you see the effects that it produces. You feel it upon your face, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going. So is the work of the Spirit. Do you see? In other words, in other words, you don't hear a distinct voice. You're not going to hear a distinct voice, a distinguishable voice of the Spirit. We're not given a distinguishable sense. We're not to pursue a distinguishable sense. We're not going to get a distinguishable sense. Oh, that was my Spirit. Oh, that was the Spirit, the Spirit of God, right? Oh, that was my voice in my head, but that was the Spirit of God's voice in my Impossible, right? We're not given a distinguishable sense of the work of the Spirit within us. As though some particular, particular or distinguishable experience then becomes the sole standard by which we are made to know that we are the children of God. That's important, okay? The Spirit's witness is not a distinguishable witness such that the experience of that witness then becomes the sole arbiter or judge of whether or not we're sons or children of God. Make sense? I'm not going to hear a voice. You are the children of God. We don't get a distinct or a distinguishable voice such that that experience then becomes the sole arbiter of whether we're children of God. And there's an important reason why we shouldn't base whether or not we're children of God on that kind of distinguishable experience. That's not the proper evidence. That's not going to be the evidence that we get that we are children of God. We're not given a warm feeling. <laughs> I just felt honey, like honey coming. No, we're not given a burning in the bosom. Don't go buying magic underwear. <laughs> we aren't looking for some mystical second blessing. The Spirit is at work within indwelling every single believer. We're not pursuing some mystical second blessing pouring out of the Spirit or blessing of the Spirit or baptism of the Spirit or being slain in the Spirit, we have the Spirit and the Spirit of God himself bears witness with our spirit that you are a child of God if you have the Spirit and if you're in Jesus Christ through faith. Do you see? This is not a charismatic second gift, a second blessing, so to speak, subsequent to our conversion. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of His, he would say, right? Verse 9. As Murray puts it, this text does not support direct propositional revelation to our consciousness. Doesn't support it. Otherwise, otherwise, the assurance that Paul is arguing for is not a blessing of God's grace given through faith in Jesus Christ, and that assurance comes through your highly subjective experience. Now, how many people have you witnessed to, Christian, in the time that you've been sharing the gospel, who have said things like that? I remember standing at the door with a young man one time, 
I'm standing at the door witnessing to him and his uh, hardly dressed girlfriend passes behind him. And I just, you know, are you, is that your wife? No, 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 that's my girlfriend. And he said to me, he was assured that he was a Christian because he was praying to God in the spirit, he, he, gift of tongues. And as he was praying with his eyes closed, he just, he cracked his eyes open just a little bit and he saw a demon leave his body. And he believed because of that experience, he is a child of God, despite the fact that how he's living, right? Despite how he's living. Do you see how deceptive that is? That experience, our experience cannot become the arbiter of whether or not we're children of God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We need to understand what that witness is and what that witness entails and certainly what that witness is not. This text does not support direct propositional revelation to the believer. It's not what this text is supporting. And it doesn't come separate from or divorced from the experience that we have of the fruits of the work of the Spirit in our life. Really important to understand. Your subjective experience is not the basis for your assurance. No. The wind blows where it wishes. You cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, but you hear the sound of it. You see the effects of it. You experience the manifest evidence of its presence. So, Brothers and sisters, we're not conscious of a distinct voice within us, a distinct witness of the Spirit within us. We're not conscious of an independent witness within us as distinguishable from our own witness. But we experience the particular effect of the Spirit's witness. Do you see? We experience the particular effect of the Spirit's own witness as clearly manifest or as clearly evident in our witness. The latter naturally or necessarily follows upon the former. In the experience of the believer, it's our own witness, the witness of your heart, the witness of renewed affections, the witness of renewed desires, the witness of a childlike love for and dependence upon God as our heavenly father. All of that testifies to the spirit's witness. We'll talk about why that is. It's in this way, again, that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. You see how the two are inseparable, how the two go together. In this way, the two bear witness together that we are the children of God. That being said, again, Paul is careful here to emphasize the particular work of the Spirit. It's not our work. It's a work of the Spirit. And that work of the Spirit is the foundation or the basis for this assurance that is given to us. The means by which we are assured that we are children of God, it's a gracious work of God caring for and assuring us that we are sons. Now, finally, with all of that in mind, There's also this emotive quality to the use of that word himself. It's the spirit of God himself. The spirit of God at work in the believer. The spirit himself. God himself, the third person of the Trinity, witnesses within us with our spirit that we are sons of God. The spirit of life, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of grace and supplication. God himself has taken up residence in our heart by his spirit. And it is he himself that wants to assure us, that wants to strengthen us, that wants to confirm us in our justification by faith. And it's he himself that assures us that we are his children. For all of the doctrinal truth that the Lord has taught us, for all of the truth that has been applied for the renewing of our mind, It is the Spirit of God himself who takes all of that truth, his revealed word, and applies the balm of the gospel to assure the undeserving, hell-bound sinner that now you are a child of mine. See what a grace that is? What a grace that is. What a blessing that is. is There's a warmth in that word himself. The Spirit himself. Almost an incredulity to it. The Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. There's a condescension in it, a loving kindness in it, and the use of that pronoun. The spirit of God himself bears witness with our spirit. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man 
that you care for him, that you would visit him in such a way. And yet he, he condescends to his own. He stoops like a loving heavenly father. He stoops to look us in the face, to look us in the, in the eye, to give us the blessedness of his own favorable countenance toward us so that we can see, so to speak, and he pours out his love in our hearts by the spirit who dwells in us, Romans 5, 5. So don't allow yourself, brother or sister, don't allow yourself to think for a moment that he's just left you to wallow in doubt and despair over the state of your soul. We have chapters now that we've gone through in the Bible that are written with the intention of assuring your heart of your status with God, the, the state of your soul, the promises that are yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And God himself, by his spirit, stoops to bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And not on the basis of some outward, subjective, sensed experience, right? I was convicted when I was 12 years old of my sin, and I know I'm a child of God. No, I cried over my sin when the Lord saved me. Well, how long did you cry? Like, how many tears did you cry? Did you, like, you know what I mean? I mean, what you do is you open yourself up to those kinds of qualifying. It's absurd. It's absurd. Our experience is not the arbiter of whether or not we are children of God. So don't rely on your experiences like that as the arbiter of whether or not you're a child of God. God tells you what to look for. He looks for, we are to look for the work of the Spirit. I felt it. I gave my heart to the Lord that day. I know. I, I felt it. I'm a child of God. Not the evidence that we're to look for. If any of that is in any way a reflection of genuine faith or true repentance, then the spirit of the witness is not necessary, is it? The spirit of God himself bears witness with your spirit. Present, active, ongoing. Not just a one-time experience when I was 12. The spirit's witness is present, active, and ongoing that you are a child of God. Don't be satisfied with anything less than understanding this and how it applies in your Christian life, okay? Don't be satisfied with anything less than the assurance that God himself provides through his spirit. The love that he has shed abroad in the heart by his spirit who was given to you. John Bunyan, um, the author of Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, struggled with assurance of his salvation. And John Bunyan wrote this. He says, I found that unless the guilt of conscience was taken off the right way, a man grew rather worse for the loss of his trouble of mind than better. In other words, the guilt of his conscience, the assurance of his salvation, assurance of his salvation had to be given in the right way. The guilt of his conscience had to be taken off in the right way. If it wasn't, Bunyan says, then that one who took it off the wrong way was rather worse for his trouble than better. I had seen some who, when they were under the wounds of conscience, then they would cry and pray. But they, seeking rather present ease from their trouble, rather than pardon for their sin, cared not for how they lost their guilt, and so they got it out of their mind. And therefore, having got it off the wrong way, it was not sanctified unto them, but they grew harder and blinder and more wicked after their trouble. I would submit to you again that many, many that we talk to, many in the world who are lost, who don't understand this truth, comfort themselves. They, essentially, they defend themselves with these idle, empty, vacuous comforts of a false assurance. I did this thing when I was 12, and I walked the aisle, or I said some prayer, or I, you know, had this experience, or I felt this thing, or somebody told me this, or I went to this church and this is what happened. And they comfort themselves with those empty notions of false religion. And rather than take off the guilt of their sin the right way, or look for assurance in the right places, they're comforting themselves with these kinds of experiences. Bunyan's saying, don't do it. How many, when you've talked to them now, and they've, their whole life, their whole life has been spent building up defensive walls against the truth of God's word on this very issue, and now their defensive 
fortifications are so well constructed, there's 10 feet of reinforced concrete that lies between their heart and the word of God, how difficult now is it to assure them of the truth that they're not Christians at all when you don't see any fruit of the Spirit's work in their life? Do you see? In the same way that man's heart is a factory of idols, man's heart is also a defender of his own righteousness, a defender defender of his own uh, entitlements. And that's what that is. Bunyan said, this makes me afraid. (laughs) He said, it made him cry to God all the more that it might not be so with him. Now, with regard to the assurance of our sonship in point one, the emphasis of the text is the particular witness of the Spirit himself. What then is the nature of his particular witness? How does this work out practically in the life of the believer? How do we explain it? In order to understand the answer to those questions, we have to first consider the context. The context. Paul's concern in chapter 8 has been the assurance that the Christian is a child of God. The Christian has been justified by the means of faith. He has peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's verse 1. But although he has the testimony of God's own word, and although he often has the, the testimony of his own love for the Lord, weak as though that testimony may be, God, I love you. Jesus Christ, you know I love you. There's also someone else who witnesses. <laughs> and that is Satan himself. Satan himself also has a voice in his conscience through the reality of the believer's remaining sin. There is a third witness, so to speak, in the equation. There is a witness within the believer of his remaining sin. And that witness is a particularly problematic witness. That principle of sin and death continues to exert a powerful influence. And it exerts a powerful influence within the faculties of his own soul, in his heart and in his mind. There is within him the witness of his remaining sin. So to encourage assurance, to strengthen assurance, Paul sets forth the evidence on which that assurance may be obtained. Paul's concern is our assurance, and to encourage our assurance in the circumstance, if you will, or in the context of this satanic witness of our remaining sin in our own heart and mind, Paul, to encourage our assurance, then lays out the evidence for assurance. The evidence is as follows. There's no condemnation to those who walk according to the Spirit. What is the evidence for those who enjoy freedom from condemnation? The evidence is a walk by the Spirit. You see? You know what it's like to live according to the flesh? Set your mind on the things of the flesh? To be enslaved to that power of sin that dwells in your members? To conduct yourself after the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of your flesh? You know what that's like. But those who walk according to the Spirit... They are those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Do you see the evidence? They are set free from enslavement to sin. And that freedom bears fruit. The Spirit now wages war against the flesh. And the two are contrary to one another so that you do not do what you wish to do. There is is as a result, as a fruit, an increasing pattern of obedience and righteousness and holiness. This is the evidence that you are walking by the Spirit. This is the evidence that you are indwelt by the Spirit. And those indwelt by the Spirit are those who put to death the deeds of the body. Can you see the evidence that Paul is laying out in the text? The evidence that you are a son of God is that you have the Spirit. And the evidence that you have the Spirit is that you walk by the Spirit. That you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That present, ongoing, active effort in the mortification of sin is the evidence that you are led by the Spirit of God and those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You see how Paul sets out to assure our hearts by the evidence of his Spirit at work in the life of the believer. Do you see? He's not laying out subjective experience. This is the evidence of whether or not you're a son of God, the work of his Spirit within you. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The mortification of sin is the evidence of the Spirit's work. And therefore, the mortification of sin is the evidence that we are children of God. Do you see? I didn't sneak into your houses and write that in your Bible over your night. That's what Paul is saying in the text. 
Right? That's what Paul is explaining in the text. Further now, as a result of the Spirit's work within us, verse 15, we are not those who continue in a slavish fear of God's condemnation. We are rather those who cling to him with a childlike faith as our heavenly father, as those who have received the spirit of God as the spirit of adoption. That's the evidence. That's the evidence. Now think with me. It is by this gracious work of the spirit and the the work of the spirit to produce the evidence of his presence within us it's a gracious it's by this gracious work of the spirit to produce evidence of his presence to reveal that evidence to our conscience to comfort and encourage us considering that evidence that he has produced to persuade us of the reliability of that evidence to persuade us of the veracity of that evidence as according to the word of God. His work in affirming that evidence to our faith, drawing us near to God as our heavenly father, as weak or as imperfect as that evidence may be, it is in this way that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you see? He's not going to do that despite the evidence or in the absence of any evidence or contrary to the evidence, the Spirit of God bears witness in accord with the evidence through the evidence that he himself is producing in the life of the believer. He produces the evidence of his presence within us. He reveals that evidence. He comforts us and encourages us with that evidence. He persuades us of the veracity of that evidence, and he affirms that evidence to our faith. He draws us near to God as our Heavenly Father, and it's by the Spirit of adoption by that love of God shed abroad in our heart, by the Spirit who is given to us, that we cry out to God, Abba, Father, that we embrace him as our heavenly Father. Otherwise, we wouldn't, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't. You'd be running in the course of this world just like you always did. A child, a son of disobedience, children of wrath, just like the rest. Well, who has made you to differ from another? God himself, by his grace, giving you his Spirit creating you anew. The Spirit of God, through that evidence, affirms these facts to our heart and soul. And it's by the Spirit that we then embrace these. Right? It's that affection, the new affections, new desires, new joys, new hopes. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The context, the context doesn't allow us to consider the Spirit's witness apart from the evidence. Paul's been laying out the evidence. We're not to consider this distinct work of the Spirit as separate from the evidence. That should serve to protect us from thinking too mystically or to protect us from thinking superstitiously and negating the evidence in favor of some mystical experience of the Spirit. But the context, listen, the context also doesn't allow us to consider the Spirit's witness only in terms of evidence, as if bare evidence alone is the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit himself who assures us, the Spirit who takes the evidence and applies that in our heart and mind. And that should, that should protect us, brothers and sisters, from thinking too moralistically, I've done this, and so I'm a child of God. And I've done that, and so I'm a child of God. There have been plenty of people who think they're children of God, who live like the devil in their heart, who profess outward moral Christianity, right? Devoid of the things of God, whitewashed on the outside, inside full of dead men's bones. So it protects us from thinking too moralistically on the other side. On one side, the precise language of Paul and the context of verse 16 keeps us from thinking too mystically, thinking too superstitiously. And on the other side, it protects us from thinking too moralistically or thinking legalistically, protects us from being hypocrites. (laughs) It's the particular witness provided by the Spirit himself. That witness affirms the evidence confirms the evidence of his gracious work within us. It affirms it to our heart and mind, producing within us an assurance of the great love that the Father has for us, the great love that he's bestowed on us, that he would call us children of God. 
And it's that love that Paul says constrains me, compels me, that I should no longer live for myself, but live for him who died and gave himself for me. I live for him. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul isn't referring to the Spirit giving new, direct, propositional revelation from God. Paul also isn't referring to simply a bare consideration of the evidence, but rather the wind blows into the way that it has been determined that it should blow. That work produces the effects that every true son of God will experience, effects that are verifiable in the word of God. I've often thought of that in witnessing to those who've grown up, quote-unquote, in Christianity. Well, I've been Christian since I was, you know, I can't even remember when. You know, my mom and dad, we went to church as far back as I can remember. I've been a Christian all my life. And essentially saying to them, you know, what's the evidence? You know, what's the basis of that kind of security? What's the basis of, of that assurance? Like, how are you so assured, so confident? It always comes back to one biblical, unbiblical reason or another unbiblical reason. And what is always lacking in that testimony is an accurate understanding of the evidence. And then that evidence applied to the heart by the Spirit. It's not a heartless evidence. It's, um, it's a, a, a blessed evidence that pours out of the heart, the new heart of a genuine believer. Like that love for God that's in your heart, you didn't author that there yourself. He is the author and the finisher, the completer of our faith. And so you, if you have renewed desires, can you see how those renewed desires are the spirit witnessing with your spirit that you are a child of God? You didn't produce those there yourself. And if you have no love for God, the opposite is true, right? If you have no love for God, you're not his. You don't have his spirit. The fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He is the one who raises the dead sinner to new life in Christ, the Spirit. He is the one who works in us, conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever the Spirit of God is at work, the Spirit is convicting us of sin. Wherever the Spirit of God is at work, he is testifying of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to save, applying all of the blessings, all of the benefits of the privileges of the gospel to our hearts and minds. He is the one who produces the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's through a work of the Spirit that we hear his voice and follow him and will by no means follow a stranger, right? And it's with this evidence, the one who embraces the blessed truths of the gospel, the one who glories in Christ Jesus and places no confidence in the flesh. Uh, with this evidence is the one who pours contempt on all of his pride, loathes the old man with his lusts, the one who is persuaded that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is persuaded that he is loved by God as a son. This one can give testimony of the Spirit himself bearing witness with his Spirit that he is a child of God. That evidence is the biblical warrant by which he does so. There is this objective element of the evidence, and that evidence then applied in the heart by the Spirit in these subjective ways that bear testimony that God has shed abroad the love of, his, love of himself in our hearts by the Spirit given to us. Without this evidence, and we're not talking about perfection, right? But present, nonetheless, without this evidence, without this evidence, he has no warrant to believe that the wind of the Spirit is at work within him. The way to determine the presence and working of the Spirit and the Spirit's own witnessing with your spirit is to consider whether these fruits and evidences may be found in you and whether or not they've been applied in your heart in these ways. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. But if this evidence of the Spirit, if this evidence of grace is found in you, then that's the assurance that Paul is intending here in the text. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. And if a child, then an heir, an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that 
more next week. So let me ask you a question in closing. Are you considering the correct evidence? When you consider your own Christian life, understanding what Paul is saying here in verse 16 and what he has said to us in the context, when you consider your own condition, the condition of your own soul, the state of your own soul, in the eyes of God, your your relationship to God, are you considering the correct evidence? Is it through that biblical evidence that you are being persuaded of your standing before God, or is it through some other unbiblical evidence that you have allowed to infiltrate your thinking? Are you considering the correct evidence? Many today allow themselves to be deceived by a false witness. By a false witness. That false witness may only be, uh, bear testimony to insufficient evidence or immaterial evidence. A fault, that false witness, the fault with, false witness really of our deceive, deceitful hearts, hearts are deceitful above all things, that false witness is only going to testify with insufficient evidence. You know, I, there was that time when I was like 31 where I, I felt like I loved the Lord, so I know I'm a Christian. <laughs> insufficient evidence or that false witness is going to um, apply immaterial, immaterial evidence. I've attended Mass Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, and Saturday for my whole life, you know, either insufficient witness or immaterial evidence. And he stands up, that false witness stands up in the court of your own conscience. You love Jesus. You love him. Well, if you love him, then where are the fruits of obedience, for example? Because Jesus said, whoever loves me keeps my commandments. Where's the fruit of your love for the brothers? You don't even go to church right? He pleads his case before the judge. I've done this. I've done that. I've had this experience or I've had that experience. Do you see what the false witness does? That witness is not the witness of the spirit. That voice is your defensive voice. (laughs) The voice of your own deceitful heart. That voice is your self-justifying voice. You need to discern that voice. And look at what God's word says is the evidence of one who is led by the Spirit of God. And as Bunyan said, don't accept anything less. Don't allow the guilt of your own sin to be taken off the wrong way. Allow the Spirit of God to bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. Don't listen to that self-justifying voice. The Spirit's witness will affirm biblical evidence. Not perfect evidence, but biblical evidence. And it's his witness alone that will seal to your heart all the promises that are yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't settle for anything less. As Bunyan said, they, seeking rather present ease from their trouble rather than pardon for their sin, cared not for how they lost their guilt, and so they got it out of their mind. And therefore, having got it off the wrong way, it was not sanctified unto them, and they grew harder and blinder and more wicked after their trouble. Lord, protect us from such foolishness. Amen? And we have the testimony of God's word, and God has been so gracious, so gracious to give us his spirit to apply that evidence in our heart and mind to know that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. That doesn't always come easy for the believer. And just like Bunyan, there are believers who uh, grow in their assurance, and sometimes assurance takes time, but don't allow the guilt of your sin to come off the wrong way. Uh, allow the Spirit of God to do the work of witnessing with your spirit. And you'll know it, you'll know it, when those evidences of faith, those evidences of a work of grace in your heart uh, take on uh, this impact uh, that can only be the Spirit's witness that produces new affections, new joys, new desires in your heart, and a love for the Lord God, right? Um, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. There's a packed theology in that in that passage of scripture, it would do us well to consider it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us. Your grace certainly in making provision for our sin, in the person and work of your own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace, your abounding grace to us in providing your spirit to us, to enable us, to illumine our understanding, and to assure our hearts before you. 
Thank you, Lord, for being so gracious. We don't deserve it. But you, in great love, um, by virtue of the person and work of your Son, and through the work of your Spirit, you, in great love, uh, shed abroad your love for us in our hearts by your Spirit given to us. And assure us that we are children of God. Uh, we're, we long for that, Lord. That is uh, the cry of our heart is to have that security of knowing that we are children of God, that we are wrapped in your embrace, uh, safe uh, under the shadow of your wing, uh, in the bosom of your embrace. And it rejoices our heart uh, to know that you have uh, made such provision for us uh, through your love poured out in the sacrifice of, of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and we rejoice and we're grateful. Uh, I would pray, Lord, in, in keeping with your word in Romans chapter 8, that you would continue to assure our hearts before you that we are children of God. Help us to grow in our apprehension of that glorious truth. As we grow in that truth, we know that that impacts the way that we perceive everything. <laughs> Uh, the way that we live, uh, the way that we think, the way that we reason, the way that we conduct ourselves, and help us to live in light of that truth, um, knowing, Lord, a confident assurance that we are yours through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for these promises. Thank you for the implications of that magnificent uh, truth, that we also are heirs together with Christ, uh, truth that we pray you'll uh, help us to understand next week as we gather together your, as your people. Uh, please, Lord, help us to grow in our assurance for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, one whom we desire to be conformed to and to live for, and may it be for your glory, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.